Well, thank you so much, Kevin, and thank you all for, uh, for being here this morning uh, and for filling out some of the information on that card. If you still have that because you couldn't quite fill it all out in time, just drop it at the uh, Welcome Center on your way out, and uh, we'll pick that up and be glad to pray for you, connect with you in whatever way that we can. Okay? Well, hey, you may or may not have ever thought about it this way before, but I'd like to make a claim this morning and then let you process whether this is accurate or true or not. And I think that there is an indisputable connection between joy and strength. I think there's an indisputable connection between joy and strength. And here's what I'm going to say this morning, and I'd like to try to approve this to you and then allow you to process this. I'd like to make this point that what gives us joy gives us strength. What gives us joy actually gives us strength. Not just a fun time, but actually gives us strength. Uh, this past week, I was getting gas at Turkey Hill, right uh, just a couple miles down the road. I'm pumping my gas, minding my own business, and next thing I know, two strangers, I guess, um, were talking at the tank next to me, and they were pumping gas, and, and all that I heard was part of a story. I didn't hear the whole thing, but one guy was saying, man, it was awesome. I remember I was at the Rolling Stones concert in, I don't know, Utah or something. There were 93,000 people there. It was incredible. And and that's what caught my attention was all of a sudden what went from a rather mundane event of just pumping gas, you know, check the brain out into whatever, to all of a sudden there's this enthusiasm on Pump 3 over here from a Rolling Stones concert from a decade ago or 20 years ago, whatever it was. And the memory of 93,000 people gathered here in the Stones play just fired him up again. And the memory of all that joy gave him strength in the moment that he didn't have before and upped the ante of my entire gas-pumping experience as well, right? And now vicariously, you as well get to hear that because what gives us joy actually gives us strength. And we experience that in any great story that we tell, don't we? Don't we get kind of a little pumped up when we talk about the things that were awesome that we remember? Isn't this the way that it works? Just ask any young lady who happened to get engaged if she's able to go to sleep that night well or not. Because what gives you joy gives you strength, and all of a sudden you can no longer sleep that night. In fact, I would even argue that the strength is not only physiological, but also emotional and relational and spiritual as well. That in fact, take that young lady who just got engaged. When she looks in the mirror that night before she goes to bed, do you think she sees that night the same things that she saw in the days in which she was depressed about how she looked? Do you think she sees anymore all the things that are wrong with her face or her body or the things that she doesn't like about who she is? Or do you think she sees in the mirror all of a sudden someone who's loved and someone who's wanted and someone who feels complete? Because what gives us joy gives us strength at a whole variety of levels. And we have this experience throughout our lives in different stages, whether it's getting a new job, winning the big game, getting the promotion that you want, the things that light us up and get us going actually provide us with strength. Now, here's what we also know, I think, and that is this, that we're willing to make great sacrifices for the things that bring us joy. It's hunting season now. I'm not a hunter, not against hunting. Wouldn't mind doing that sometime, maybe, but not against hunting at all. But what gives us joy gives us strength, and we are willing to make great sacrifices of time and resources to go hunt. I'm willing to make great resources to go cycle because I enjoy it. We are all willing to make great sacrifices to go find and do the things that bring us great joy, aren't we? Whether that's hunting or cycling, or for some of us, it's you know, going out to eat, going on vacation. We're willing to work extra, stay up way late, um, spend a whole bunch of money, save a lot of money, whatever we need to do, because we're willing to make great sacrifices for things that bring us joy. We also know this that not every source of joy is created equal. 
that as our life progresses, as we get progressively older, hopefully wiser, but more experienced with life, the things that used to bring us joy um, and resolve some of our struggle simply don't anymore, right? When I was younger, and uh, when I was in a period of trouble or anxiety because my sister took something from me or, you know, I felt like, um, you know, I didn't get another cookie or whatever and whatever. Um, I, I might be pacified with, uh, you know, just a, a kiss from mom and a boo-boo or, you know, a, hey, you're, you're worn out about something. Here's, you know, a little bit of food to, you know, calm you down or a drink of water or whatever. As I get older, um, a cookie no longer works. A little boo- kiss on the boo-boo doesn't no longer work. It's like, the source of joy, the things that worked earlier to, to kind of light me up and get me going, no longer work because the issues that I have are bigger, and the issues that you have are bigger or deeper. Like the things that brought you joy when you were younger, we grow out of and need to find other sources of joy to handle the things that life throws at us. So as I've told the story before medically, when we were having significant struggle with our middle child and didn't know if she would survive or not in the womb, I will tell you that the things that brought me joy before, like going to um, you know, play sports, I've really enjoyed that, that brought great joy for me, that brought zero joy and strength in the moment of when I needed because there was something deeper going on. I, I, it was foolishness to go out to eat when I didn't know if my daughter would live, right? Like that doesn't bring me joy because I need more strength for this moment, right? The sources of joy are all different. And so here's what I want to say with all that. I want to say this. that I have to ask this question. That, that are the places that I'm looking for joy able to provide the kind of strength that I need for life? So as I think about how I spend my life, whether it's my hobbies, my interests, the ways in which I divide my attention and the ways in which I pursue things that make me happy and the things that I love to pursue are the sources of joy to which I struggle for and save for and plan for, sources of joy that provide adequate strength for the weight of the issues that I face in my life. Does that make sense? In other words, if I'm facing a $100 problem, am I pursuing a five-cent solution to it over here? Like if I'm needing to figure out if my identity uh, issues or needing to handle a question of cancer or needing to handle a question of, you know, my future, my my kid's future, simply planning a great vacation is simply not going to be enough to bear the weight of that issue in my life. It's just simply a five-cent solution to a $100 problem, if you will. And so I have to ask this question. Now, let me keep going with this, and that is this, that if what gives us joy gives us strength... The question I have to ask is this, how strong do I want to be? If what gives us joy gives us strength, I have to ask the question, how strong do I want to be? Do I want to have the kind of strength that can see me through the life's most difficult circumstances, life's most troubling and dire times? And if I do, then I have to say that I need to pursue a source of joy that is adequate enough for the strength that I need in my life. Now... The reason I bring all of this up is because in this series that we're in called Remember When, in the book of Nehemiah, the people of Israel are facing a time in which they're about to experience a time of great joy. And in that moment, what we see is something very, very insightful that helps us understand this relationship between joy and strength that I think is a game changer for a community and can be a game changer for how we pursue our various interests that bring us joy. Now, if you will... 
I'd invite you to turn with me to the book of Nehemiah. It's in the Old Testament. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a Bible in the pew around you. That's going to be our gift to you if you don't own a Bible, by the way. Easiest way to find Nehemiah is to open up to the book of Psalms and uh, go backwards a couple books and you'll find the book of Nehemiah. We are um, about eight parts into a ten-part series on the book of Nehemiah. And at this point in our study... Essentially what is happening is that the wall of Jerusalem has been rebuilt. That happened in 52 days. And uh, everyone is excited for that. We've overcome some opposition externally and internally. Things are moving in the right direction. And now the people, believe it or not, there's some residents in Jerusalem, but there are many who have moved outside of the city limits and are now living in the countryside right around the city, right around the city walls that have just been rebuilt. And so... We're coming into the seventh month of the year, which is a a prescribed month of celebration for the nation of Israel. And so imagine this for a minute. The wall is rebuilt, and people are settling back into their homes and starting to get back into a new life as normal. And the seventh month comes, and it's the first year that they get to celebrate together as a people because they have a place to do that. They have a city with walls and a temple that's being rebuilt and a collective conscience that's being rebuilt, and so they have this opportunity to celebrate. And so we pick up the story at the beginning of the seventh month, a year of celebration, uh, excuse me, a month of celebration in which the people, all these people, are now coming together for the very first time in about 70 years to see what's going on and to celebrate. So check, check it out with me in Nehemiah chapter 8 we are going to be in this morning. Nehemiah chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. We read here, all the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. And so on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. To get a scope and an understanding of how many people are here, we think that there's about thirty to 50,000 people described in verses 1 and 2. So we're not talking about a small gathering, we're talking about a massive gathering of people. Not quite as many as we're at that Rolling Stones concert from my gas-pumping friend. But we think, based on uh, our numbers in chapter 7, about thirty to 50,000 people now are coming together to make up this assembly. And so look what happens next, this is amazing. So he read it aloud, this is the book of the law. He, he read it aloud from daybreak until noon. As he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people fell asleep because they were bored. Right? Isn't that what yours says? And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Are you kidding me? For about six hours, 30 to 50,000 people, and everybody listened attentively to the book of the law tells me that they haven't done this for a long time. This is new. There is an interest here. So we get to see what happens. We really get a chance to get into the moment and get into the scene of Jerusalem. It's it's the best way for us to process this passage is to really kind of transport ourselves back in time to be in this crowd and to be in this moment of a a new kind of celebration for people who have never been able to do this. So look at verse 4. So here's what's happening. We get a picture of it. Ezra the scribe stood on a, a high wooden platform built for the occasion. So they were building for this, prepping for it. They were getting ready for this big celebration. They knew it was coming. And beside him on his right stood, and now we're going to do a responsive reading. You guys read this part. 
Just kidding. Okay. I don't know how to say all these names, but we got six people there, right? Mattathiah, Shema, blah, blah, blah. Okay. And on his left were these guys, seven other guys as well. Uh, the point is not to prove we can pronounce these names or not. The point is simply this. There were six people on one, seven on the other, 13 people gathered around Ezra. And I don't even know who they were. I don't think anyone actually knows what their role actually was, but that's kind of immaterial. The point is there's a support, there's a strength in numbers of this is who we are as a nation. This is now our new identity coming out. We're going to read this. So Ezra's up on this wooden platform built for the occasion. People are looking up to him. And Ezra, we kind of get an opening of it. Ezra opened the book, verse 5. He opened the book. And all the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. That's amazing. The picture of the crowd. He opens the book. Boom. We've been waiting for this for a long time. And everybody stands up out of respect for the law of God. Amazing. Verse 6, Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. And then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Maybe they were charismatic. I don't know. You know, I mean, check that. That's fully embodied worship right there. Like, they're just going after that thing. We're raising our hands and we're bowing down. We're just... In and it wasn't, I don't think, any kind of force thing like, okay, now it's time to raise hands, everybody raise hands, or now time to like the sense that I get in reading this is this is just a reaction to the goodness of God. (laughs) This is just a reaction of the soul of this beauty and strength of finally being able to do this. And how do you get those things out except through our bodies? And this is what they did. And so uh, I'm not in the business nor interested in prescribing anything of this nature ever. That takes the joy and life out of it. But we need to recognize this is part of people who respond to the goodness of God. That's what they did. So imagine that. Just picture it again. Be in the moment. Be in the city. 30,000, 50,000 people. Hands raised, amen, amen, bowing down with their faces to the ground, saying, amen, amen. They can't contain themselves. And then check out what happens in verse 7. So the Levites, again, this whole list of Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, John, Manakub, on and on, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. So our understanding is Ezra read portions and then people, because there's thirty to 50,000 people and there's no microphones yet that we know of, that people like the Levites would be stationed around in different quadrants, different sections, and they would explain what was just read to the people. So it wasn't just Ezra up there reading for six hours monotonous. This is Ezra read, and then these uh, Levites who were teachers of the law standing around and explaining it to the people. So look at verse 8. So they read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. Can you imagine what it would be like to have gone 70 years without having a moment like this as a people? Can you imagine what would be happening in the crowd? Can you imagine the, the grandparents sitting there, standing there, thinking to themselves, what would you be thinking as a grandparent? If you... If you had this value, and you were raised with this value of the worship of Yahweh, and you knew this was part of your heritage and your tradition, and your kids never got to experience this. And your grandkids, this is the first time they're seeing something like this. What are you hoping for your kids and your grandkids? I know I'm hoping, I hope this takes. Like, oh, the, the, 
the desire and the, the soul is almost beyond words at this point to say, man, I hope this moment takes that we as a people can see this and this can become us again because it's been so long that we have not been able to be around the law of God like this, to have it explained to us where we actually finally get it. It's almost like, it's almost like being forced to miss Christmas if you're a Christmas person being forced to miss Christmas for 70 straight years, and you have these big, incredible family gatherings, and you're not able to do that for 70 years, and all of a sudden you get to do it. This is almost that moment for the people of Israel. They didn't have that opportunity until now. There's such enthusiasm running through, kind of coursing through their veins. And at the same time, here's what I think is also happening. I think as the law of God is being read, they're hearing things that they haven't heard for decades Some have never heard before. Some people literally will be sitting there like, I had no idea God wanted us to do that. I had no idea that I was supposed to raise my kids this way. I had no idea I was supposed to treat my neighbor like this. I had no idea that God wanted me to do this or do that. There's a sense of, we just haven't been exposed and we haven't understood it. So look what happens in verse 9. The Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest and scribe and Levites, who were instructing the people, said to them all, This day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Why do you think they were weeping? I think the reason they're weeping is because they realize they're cut to the heart all of a sudden that the word of God cuts them deep and they realize, man, they're... Number one, I'm overwhelmed with the fact that we can be here. But number two, there's things that I haven't been doing, haven't even thought about, and I can't believe we're here, that, that underneath the weeping is this cutting to the heart, this awe of the, the power and weight of this moment. And Nehemiah takes this moment for the people, this moment of weeping and mourning, and he recasts it into something that becomes a verse that many of you, if you've been in church before, know, at least know part of this verse. And he recasts it, and he takes this moment, and he puts words to it, that I think are the absolute right words that help us understand what is really happening. And Look at verse 10. He said this, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord. And then he says this, Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your, what? Strength. The joy of the Lord, is your strength. Because there is an undeniable connection between what gives you joy and where you get your strength from. The joy of the Lord is your strength. In other words, this moment these people were experiencing is not a moment of weeping. Underneath the weeping and underneath the mourning is joy. Why? That is a critical question. This is the question. What was it that brought them joy? What was it about this that was joyful? Because they're mourning and weeping. And Nehemiah says, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. It's a time of celebration. Go drink and eat and have a feast, have a party. In fact, I want you to think about people who don't have any food. Go give them things because we want this feast to be spread throughout the land so everyone has a time of feasting. Why? What brought them joy? And I would argue it is not just being together. 
that brought them joy, although that does bring joy. It is not just the moment of being back in the city of Jerusalem and having the walls rebuilt, although that does bring joy. I would argue that what the joy of the Lord is in this moment is this, being part of a community that seeks to understand and submit to God and his word together. That's what I think brought them joy. Look back at verse 8 with me. See, they read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. And in that moment of all of a sudden, I get it, I see it, I hear it, and look at all these people wanting to respond to me. I'm a part of a community that does this. All of a sudden, that aha moment of, you're kidding me, this is what God has wanted us to do? This is what his law means? That gift to our hearts is profound. And that gift cuts us, if you will, and helps us realize where we don't forgive, where we're not patient, where we turn our hearts from him. And it's a gift to have the words of God given to us that we can know him through his word. And that is what I believe gives them joy here, that they've understood the law of God. Because in understanding it, they have seen God. Many of you know that this past week, the Christian church has celebrated something profound, and that is... uh, the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. For those of you who don't know what that is, the monk Martin Luther um, was frustrated with what was the only church at the time, the Catholic Church, and he posted 95 theses or ideas or opinions, beliefs, uh, on the door of the Wittenberg Chapel. And in posting that, one of the fundamental things underneath Luther's um, anger toward the church as it was, was this problem, that the church, rather than the scriptures, were becoming the authority for the people, to put it simply. One of Luther's frustrations is that all of a sudden the church, and not the scriptures, were becoming the leading authority for Christianity. It's subtle, but it's big. It's subtle, but it's big. Because what brings the joy to the people here in our text in Nehemiah is not the priests, it's not the teachers of the law, but it's actually understanding the book of the law, understanding the scriptures, understanding what is being said, because in understanding God's word, I see him. And so as we gather, even here today, The interest is in how do, how do I, if I'm teaching the Word of God, how do I reveal to you, God, that, that you are led by the Scriptures and not by a teacher, not by a pastor, not by the laity, not by, that we are people under the authority of the words of God as we see them in the Scriptures. This is part of our Christian history, part of our heritage as people. What we like to say here at Grace Point is this, and it's one of our core values. We say at the beginning, middle, and end of the day, God is in charge and what he wants goes. And the Bible reveals God's clearest desires. When what I want conflicts with what God wants, he wins. That's our way of saying we want, as a people, to value the scriptures. 
we want to value their authority in our lives. Like we are under the authority of the scriptures before we're under the authority of the quote-unquote church or even under the authority of the pastors per se, that we recognize the value and weight the scriptures bring to us. Now as leadership, we sure hope that we're tracking with the scriptures, but we put them above us, no question about that. And then we give us a question to ask, and that is this question. How much authority am I willing to give God and his word in my life? This is what we ask people who are members of the church to ask themselves. How much authority am I willing to give God and his word uh, in my life? This is, this is a critical question for us. And the reason for that is we want to be people who are constantly putting ourselves under the authority of God's word. And look at what happens next. I want you to come back to the text for a minute and look at what happens next. Because it continues to drive this point home, I believe. Look at verse 11 of Nehemiah 8. The Levites calmed all the people, saying... Be still, for this is a sacred day. Again, do not grieve. Then verse 12, Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy, because, and here's the reason, the explanation for their joy again in verse 12, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them, and that brought them joy. And so on the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and Levites, gathered around Ezra the scribe to give attention to the words of the law. Did you notice what happened? We're now on day two. That all happened in day one. Overnight, after their feasting, we're now on the second day of the month in verse 13. So this is the very next day after this big gathering. They gathered, the heads of the families gathered. And look what verse 14. They found written in the law, because they didn't know it was there, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in booths during the feast of the seventh month. Now, this is weird to us, not weird to them. I'll explain it in a minute. And that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hill country and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees and from myrtles, palms, and shade trees to make booths, as it is written. How would you love that application today? You come to church, whatever, and the next day you come back, and you're like, listen, what we're going to do is just make a tent city for about a week. Go grab stuff, like just raid the neighbor's property, bring back whatever bushes you can and leaves and trees that you can, and we're going to replicate what the nation of Israel was doing, is replicating what it was like to live in temporary dwellings when they were wandering through the desert. And this is a, a moment of stepping back into that season so we can celebrate the future of, of being out of that. So it's strange, but they do it. Look at that, verse 16. So the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves booths on their own roofs in their courtyards in the courts of the house of God in the square by the water gate and the one by the gate of Ephraim. And so the whole company had returned, that had returned from exile built booths and lived in them from the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day. The Israelites had not celebrated it like this, and their joy was very great. Day after day, from the first to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. And they celebrated the feast for seven days, and on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. Now, let me come back to this for a minute. What gives us joy gives us strength. This is where I get it from. That what brought the nation of Israel strength was the joy of the Lord that they found in submitting to the words of God as a people. As I think about this for us, I want to say a couple things. One, an application of a message like this is um, not just personal, but more than personal. In other words, think about it this way with me. As we're sitting here thinking about the nation of Israel and their reaction to the words of God and to the scriptures, 
it'd be easy for me to say, therefore, what I'd like you all to do is make sure that you read your Bible on a regular basis. And I can sit here and you can sit here and say, like, that seems like a logical conclusion to this passage, that there's value and wisdom in reading the Word of God on a regular basis. And let me tell you, there is. In fact, one of the largest studies that we've, that's been done that we know of recently, um, initiated originally by Willow Creek Church called the Move Study, surveyed, I think, 20,000 Christians in North America and found that one of the key hallmarks of Christian formation, spiritual formation, is that people who grow the most and accelerate their growth most consistently are actually in the Word of God on a regular basis. That being in your Bible is a great thing and a good thing. And so let me encourage that. And let me also say this, the people in Nehemiah 8 had no Bible to read. And so they could not apply it in this way. They did not own copies of the scripture the way that you and I do. And so the application of this message is personal, but more than personal. Because what's happening in Nehemiah 8 is a corporate response to the words of God. It's a corporate event. People are gathered, 30,000 or 50,000 people together experiencing the beauty of being under authority and not being kings of our own domain. This is a corporate event of people realizing how beautiful a gift it is to be able to come under the authority of the Word of God and see it for the first time anew with fresh eyes and a clean heart and desire to honor Him, to apply so far as to going to live in booths for a a week. That this is a corporate event as much as it is a personal event. In fact, not if not even more. And so let me encourage us. I want to take this moment in the book of Nehemiah to say this is what I would love to continue to drive us in Grace Point Church. That we be a people who have this thirst for an unquenchable desire to be under not just the teaching of one or two or three or eight people ever, but under the authority of the Word of God as a people. That we find our joy that will give us incredible strength in continuing to pursue God in the Scriptures together, that we find answers, perspective, wisdom, vision, encouragement, hope. We find tears and mourning in the Scriptures, that we continue to be people who dive right back into, into, into together the Word of God so that we can know the God of the Word. This is what I, I want for us, to find the strength in community to be people who will never walk away from moments like this in the nation of Israel that we see so clearly that the joy of the Lord's will, His wisdom, His words become our strength. So that when you teach, when you teach kids and you're preparing your lesson for a Sunday morning or a Wednesday, or when you're mentoring and you're leading a Bible study or a small group in what you're doing, and so many of you do that, Listen, I want you to know, when you're helping people understand the Scriptures, you're giving them an opportunity to see God anew. That their hearts can be cut again to the core. They can see who they are, and that is an incredible gift. So, thank you. Thank you for teaching our kids, our next generation. For teaching our junior high, our senior high, young adults, and adults. Thank you for being people who do that and give of your time to make that happen. It is a game changer for us as people to continue to hold up the authority of the Word of God so that we can know the God of the Word. And as you're struggling and wrestling and trying to figure out, man, what do I do with my family, what do I do with my kids, what do I do with my marriage, what do I do with finances, my future and all that, please do not try to find 
a five-cent answer to a $100 problem. In other words, in all that you're trying to pursue and in, in trying to figure out your identity and your future and your plans and grieving and all the stuff of life that comes around us, I'm just telling you, God has given us a gift in his word that we can together pursue. And so I want you and us as a people to have this collective desire to say, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. But I want to I get into the Word of God with somebody. I want to get into a, a study together. I want to be part of a, a group that continues to pursue the, the Word of God so that I can understand that and see Him anew. Because underneath God's Word, and with this I'm going to finish, underneath God's Word, here's what, here's what I see happening in Nehemiah chapter 8 that I really want to emphasize for us. Underneath is this message from God. The joy of the Lord is your strength. That as you read the scriptures, as you come to the Bible, I don't want you to come, and I don't believe God wants you to come, and I know in Nehemiah 8, Nehemiah didn't want them to come with it, with this feeling of, if I read the Bible, I'm going to find things that I should stop doing. God is a killjoy. He is a moral enforcer. And the joy in life will be sucked from me because I won't be able to do, and I will just feel guilty from, and there's no life there. And some of you may have felt that as you engage the Bible. In Nehemiah 8, Nehemiah turns and says, listen, underneath your weeping, underneath your mourning, this moment is not a time of mourning, this is actually a time of joy. And know this, that the life of the Scriptures is a life of joy, beauty, and strength, because of how God turns us and helps us see His good grace. And so as a people, if we get, if we get, Nothing else from this. I simply want this to be an encouragement for us as a people, never, 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 to back away from finding the joy of the Lord is our strength in a communal, constant pursuit of understanding God through His Word in all the groups and all the places in which we find ourselves. Now, next week, we're going to see these people make a commitment to something like this that is so valuable to them and such a high-level commitment that is rare to see today. But we're going to explore that commitment and what that means next week. We'd love to have you join us. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your word, to see again from the book of Nehemiah the beauty and strength of the word of God that we have the privilege of studying and exploring here today. I pray that where we need an encouragement where we need a reminder of who you are in light of who we are, that you would drive us again in our own personal pursuit to know your word and to dive back in to read the scriptures again for ourselves, yes. Personally, yes. But also corporately, that our friendships can be marked by people who share this value of getting into the word of God together. That we can find our, our joy in the strength that you bring by revealing your clearest desires to us in your word. I pray that you would help us to be people who consistently put ourselves under the authority of the words of God through the scriptures. Give us this belief and conviction, I pray, that we can see you as a God who is merciful, strong, powerful that we can know through the Word of God that you have the might, you have the power to save us, and that in 
seeing you in the Word of God, we will come to know you better and put our lives in perspective. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.